Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Dr. Jim Kornberg graduated from MIT with a BS and MS in aeronautical and astronautical engineering. He also went to Harvard to earn a Doctor of Science in Environmental Engineering and, in addition, enrolled in Dartmouth Medical School, where he earned his MD. Dr. Kornberg is board certified in occupational and environmental medicine under the American Board of Preventive Medicine and is a fellow in the American College of Preventive Medicine. For the past 25 years, Dr. Kornberg has successfully developed and operated a multidisciplinary environmental engineering and medical consulting firm. Dr. Jim Kornberg, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you, Fred. Jim, I know this is your wheelhouse. Based on your subject matter expertise, what keeps you up at night in the midst of our pandemic? You know, I thought long and hard about the kind of questions you might ask me, and uh, this one is easy to answer. And the answer is the next pandemic. Um, I think the fact that the next one may be more infectious and even more lethal over a broader range of the population, and the fact that we will respond to the next one as badly as we did this one. Further, the fact that we will ignore the recent chaotic and what I would call lamentable process of public health and political reaction and overreaction that's been so disproportionate and asymmetric. And I mean that in both directions. I, I think that the, the reaction and overreaction have just been terrifying. I think it's going to take at least a decade or more for us to come back together again. And we can't afford to let that happen again. And that brings me to, I think, the, the focus of, of these preceding comments. And that's the, the fact that particularly, you know, from my point of view as a, a public health clinical specialist, you know, I'm board certified in occupational and environmental medicine. You know, I have a doctorate in environmental engineering as well. Uh, we initially disregarded the inevitable adverse mental health problems of millions of Americans who really have suffered economic destruction from the lockdowns that were inflicted without good scientific foundation. These were seemingly arbitrary, but they were always capricious lockdowns. And for the most part, the, the previous quarantines uh, allowed for individual movement and freedom, which does not exist today. We, we just must do better, much better next time. Jim, what aren't people thinking about as it pertains to the pandemic? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, but as mentioned before, you know, they weren't really, people aren't thinking broadly enough about the toll uh, taken by society's response on all of their fellow Americans, including the people who have suffered economic destruction. And what bothers me also is that most people aren't thinking about the reliability <clears throat> of what you know really are the numbers of models that have commandeered every aspect of our lives in the roughly in, in the past roughly six 15 months. Take, for example, 
the six-foot social distancing number that we must all obey. I mean, we're slaves to that number. Society is a or has been a slave to that number. I'd like you to think for a minute, and I, I know your listeners, are, have some of them have pretty good mathematical background, but this number is really an independent variable in some equation. This is a modeled equation that would predict some dependent outcome. Let, let's say it's ICU visits per week in a given scenario. It's one of a myriad of independent variables. It may range from the ambient temperature and pressure in a given environment to population density and gender and age mix. So again, think of this equation. On the left side is the ICU visits per, per week, and on the right side, given all things equal, is that, that uh, value of six feet. Consider a situation in which all factors not, not, don't change, uh, except changing the six-foot uh, social distancing number. We don't want to change that. Let's say that the six-foot social distancing number predicts that there will be 20 ICU visits per week. So, Fred, we've got on the right side of the equation, all these variables and the six-foot number. And on the left side, we've got the 20 ICU visits per week. So I ask you a question, and I see if you can answer it. You know, if we change six feet to three feet, you know, what will happen to the number 20? I don't know. I'm happy you said that. You know, will will this number, again, you know, will it increase to 22, 30, maybe 100, or maybe it'll remain the same? And you have to ask the same question, that if we change six feet to eight feet, you know, will the number drop from 18 to 16, maybe six or remain the same? The answer is, you're right. We do not know, period. But people seem to think they didn't know the answer. Consider for a moment, if we drop six feet to three feet, it may be very well possible to run a bakery, a welding shop, or an elementary school classroom uh, with a social distancing number of three feet instead of six feet. The other thing is that the average citizen isn't thinking enough about the genesis of the SARS-CoV-2. It, it, is, this, is this agent uh, an agent that's consistent with uh, a biowarfare agent? Does it really come from nature? Is that spike protein just too perfect to believe that it uh, you know, came from nature? Or what, would it have been genetically engineered? Yeah, well said. Uh, Jim, COVID has changed the corporate security and executive protection space. If you were responsible for protecting a CEO, Jim, what are some reasonable and effective countermeasures that you would recommend to reduce the risk to your VIP? That's a great question. Um, let, let me start and say this. I would like to make certain that my team had a flexible scenario-based algorithm that clearly identified the most probable permutations of outcome in every situation that we knew had existed historically and would likely exist in the future. So there has to be a lot of studying done um, to, to know what, had hap what might happen to the CEO in a given a situation and um, of course, what the changing landscape would cause to happen in the future. I'd make certain that, they, that there were threat neutralizing countermeasures identified for each situation that we can think of. And they went far beyond just looking, for example, for alternative escape routes. So I would say we've got to go, your, your CEO has got to have vaccinations that are consistent, appropriate in general, but also appropriate to, to uh, his or her uh, specific situations. Um, the SARS-CoV-2, H1N1, hepatitis B, polio, tetanus, also in general, 
you, you want to have a complete first aid kit. I mean, a large face first aid kit handy, bandages. And one of the things I've recently recommended are blood clotting agents like blood, like bleed stuff. I'll sort of stop it there because of our time constraints. That's very, very useful, Jim. We'll make sure our listeners have uh, links for that up in our website because I know uh, just in traveling around and having protected individuals in the past, that kind of advice goes a long way. Um, Jim, how does a protection officer on a practical level sanitize a CEO's hotel room, limousine, or office? What would be your advice? I, you know, it, it seems to me that we um, should first consider, you know, the capabilities of the cr cleaning crew uh, that preceded the arrival of the CEO. Of course, to audit that, that crew uh, would require some upfront work. I'm sure, for example, the Secret Service uh, is on top of that, uh, possibly by literally interviewing each individual. But I'd ask questions like, did, did the hotel limo service or the, this office maintenance crew um, adhere to standards uh, of, of, of practice? Groups like the ISSA, that's the International Sanitary Supply Association, that's a leading trade association uh, for the cleaning industry worldwide. And, and that group uh, is very effective in uh, giving recommendations on how these uh, the cleaning operation should occur, not only including specific agents that they need to use uh, for cleaning, uh, but also um, the, the methods and the checklists and so forth. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTick's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial that is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Now, Jim, we're in the midst of COVID. It's been devastating to our nation and the workplace. But I just know from being a former agent and working in the corporate security space that although COVID's right in our face, pardon the pun, what other biohazards should corporate security personnel worry about? I, I have something in front of me here, Fred, which uh, lists the, um, the CDC uh, biothreat uh, categorization. They, they put it into uh, basically three categories. Now, I'll go over each one with you if, you, if you'd like. Uh, category A are, are more or less agents that they think will pose a threat to national security. And the criteria for those is that they can be easily disseminated or transmitted from person to person, can result in high mortality rates and have a high potential for major public health impact. Now, they list um, the following agents that they figure could possibly be uh, capable of causing uh, the preceding uh, prerequisites. Anthrax, botulism, plague, smallpox, tularemia, and the viral hemorrhagic fevers. 
But when you think about it, the criteria for the more deadly agent that I refer to in the answer to the first question is that if you have a highly infectious agent in theory, and it is not highly deadly, like, like the agent of COVID-19, think about an aircraft carrier. If you have 3,000 sailors, you don't have to kill them all if you try to infect them. Uh, you just have to put a, a 20 or 30% of them in sick bay. So if you, if you theorize that um, the, the, the current uh, SARS-CoV-2 agent could be used as a, um, uh, a bioweapon, it's highly infectious, but does, is not, in, not very deadly. The next one to come along could be a weaponization or something to that effect of one of these agents together. But you would want them, you want the agent to be highly infectious, like measles, for example which uh, if you were to combine um, viral hemorrhagic fever with measles, I, I think you know where I'm going with that. It would be a, a very, very deadly combination. In light of all of this, COVID and what you just covered, is there any portable equipment that executive protection personnel should consider buying to scan for these biohazards? Well, th there really are. You know, uh, the, the number is mind boggling. I mean, they're, they're well over 100. Uh, and the technology is changing, you know, in, in a pretty amazing way. So there, there are two good, very good publications which started uh, just after 9-11 in 2001 um, that actually address this specific question. I'll read you them to you slowly so your listeners can get an idea of which ones these are. First of all, the National Institute of Justice put out a guide called uh, NIJ Guide 101. Dash zero zero, and Fred. The name of that was called an introduction to biological agent detection equipment for emergency first responders. So it came out in December of two thousand one, and you might consider that to be the you know the first um, attempt to to really put this information in one place. And sometime around two thousand seven, uh, Homeland Security came out with a guide for the selection of biological agent detection equipment for emergency first responders. And this was called Guide 101-06. Repeat, Guide 101-06. Date is March 2007. The one that I happen to look at um, uh, is the second edition. Well, Jim, uh, this has been extraordinarily helpful. Uh, it's a very complex issue, uh, one that uh, people struggle with to try to understand the threat, to try to understand best practices, and what can be reasonably done. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? Well, I'd like to hear your opinion on, uh, not, not with each specific question necessarily, but what keeps you awake at night? Well, I think you've touched on a fair number because just as a practitioner who has served my time as a cop and as an agent and as managed protection details, this is such a complex issue that it's very difficult to get solid advice, which is why we really, really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. And I also know, Jim, that you've got a book. Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I have had over 915 um, extremely complicated toxic tort litigation cases um, along the lines of the Exxon uh, Valdez type spill, uh, the Flint, Michigan uh, water crisis. Um, I have for 
for probably uh, at least since the early 1980s, uh, have been the, one of the people behind the scenes who has put together the um, the intellectual SWAT team uh, to to address these issues. Um, and a lot of the law firms that um, uh, that uh, are trying to tackle these things will call a person like me, and because I have both uh, a doctorate uh, in engineering and aerosol physics, uh, and I'm also a medical doctor and board certified. Um, I, I essentially am the causation expert that assists um, these um, uh, the development of these cases. So, for example, uh, in in the, ca the case in point with my book, I was called upon to look at um, a, a phenomenon that occurred uh, after Hurricane Katrina, in which literally about 150,000 um, citizens who had lost their homes and everything uh, were put into trailers that uh, FEMA had provided them that were contaminated with formaldehyde. Now, the formaldehyde came from uh, a number of sources, such as um, the uh, insulation, but, but mo most importantly, it came from uncured urea formaldehyde glue that was used in plywood that had not been properly baked out. So the trailer manufacturers took these this plywood with uncured uh, glue in it, and uh, it built um, cabinets, it built um, uh, the, the floors of the trailers, the roof of the trailers, and so forth. And they uh, it did not take into consideration the need to bake all of this out. Well, once these people were put uh, into these trailers, uh, many of them, a subset of them, especially those with uh, respiratory disease or pre-existing asthma, it really did suffer. So. I was put in charge of taking an index case. It was a young man, uh, a uh, child of color who was 10 years old, uh, who was sent from New Orleans up to um, uh, uh, Colorado here to be evaluated. And uh, I, I supervised that evaluation and uh, went to court on his behalf and on behalf of uh, tens of thousands of other people who had suffered uh, while working in this, you know, by living in this trailer. And uh, this book, Bite the Hand to Feed You is a, uh, I must tell you, it's a fictionalized account of that case and uh, what happened in the case, uh, what happened in the uh, federal court, uh, my testimony, actually, you can find it online if you want. But I decided that because of the sensitivities of um, all factors related to this book um, and uh, the people behind it, I decided to go through a, a three-year project of turning it into a work of fiction. Um, and it's I, I often when I sign the book, I call it a wild and woolly ride um, into reality with an, what I call it, Fred, an overdose of, um, of um, fantasy. I don't want to spoil it anymore, but you can get it on my website. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, and the name of the book is Bite the Hand to Feed You. And uh, you can see that um, it's a fitting title because uh, don't always take things that are free without a grain of salt. And certainly these people that were put in these trailers, and they certainly didn't pay for them, um, should have bitten the hand that fed them. Uh, and that's basically the theme of the book. Well, thank you so much, Jim, uh, for everything that you have done and continue to do. And I really appreciate you sharing your subject matter expertise on these topics. And we'll make sure we have your book linked up on our website and with our mail out. And uh, we really, really appreciate you being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast today. Well, I, I just want to tell you, Fred, uh, uh, it's a great honor and uh, I'm very humbled by this type of an opportunity. And I thank you very much.
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.